Welcome to the Academy of Ideas Economy Forum. I'm Rob Lyons. I'm the convener of the forum and I'll be chairing this discussion of the impact of coronavirus on Italy and South Africa. In their different ways, Italy and South Africa are very important economically. Italy is the eighth largest in the world by nominal GDP and the third largest in the EU. It has a highly developed manufacturing sector on a par in many respects with Germany's and still runs a trade surplus. On the other hand, GDP growth has been practically non-existent for years and persistent economic problems have left Italy as the country most likely to bring down the Eurozone. South Africa is the second largest economy in Africa and the only African country in the G20. It has rich mineral and resource wealth, but it is also stagnating, beset by a one-party state and corruption. Where once it was branded as an up-and-coming economy, one of the BRICs alongside Brazil, Russia, India and China, it is no longer talked about as being a major part of the future of the world economy. Moreover, both countries have been badly hit by the crisis. Our speakers are Dominic Standish and Russell Grinker. Dominic, Dominic is a lecturer, media commentator and uh, on Italian affairs and author of Venice in Environmental Peril, Myth and Reality. Russell is a former architect who's worked in the housing and economic development sectors in the UK and South Africa for more than 40 years. The discussion will be a game of two halves. Dominic will introduce his thoughts on Italy, followed by about 30 minutes of discussion, and then we'll turn to Russell for his thoughts on South Africa. Right, so over to you, Dominic. Okay, ciao from the first lockdown country in Europe, now largely unlocked, which is enjoyable, but also important economically. Uh, given this is an economic forum, I'm gonna give you quite a lot of data. It's very kind of data driven. So bear with me if I need to look down at my notes to check the figures uh, briefly. I'm also going to share some uh, charts with you. I've got three headline messages for this introduction. The first one is that the COVID crisis has not turned into a financial crisis in the short term. It's largely been averted by Italy increasing its budget deficit and its debt. And the European Central Bank has been the key institution supporting Italian debt expansion. The second key message is that there has been a historical and contemporary weak political leadership in Italy. That has made the debt problems and other economic problems worse. My third key message is that despite all these problems, Italy has many positives, yet the current government is not sufficiently focused on the key issues focused on various different mechanisms in Europe for saving Italy. So let's get into what's happened with the lockdown in Italy. So non-essential companies uh, were closed between the 23rd of March and the 4th of May. Approximately 4 million employees not working. And then on the 18th of May, uh, all shops open and on the 1st of June bars, restaurants, uh, barbers and beauty parlours uh, could open. In terms of what happened to employees during the lockdown period, Italy was actually quite lucky because it already had a furlough scheme called Casa di Integrazione, uh, literally integration into the house, which has been operating for many years. Under that scheme, contracted employees uh, at home get 80% of their official pay. However, the experience of that 
vary quite considerably. Uh, thousands of Italians received no money. I was speaking to an employee at a large jewellery company last weekend. He told me he was initially told by his company that he had to go on vacation leave at the beginning of lockdown. And then when he did receive his check from Casa di Integrazione, it was only 30% of his regular salary. In terms of the uh, length of the furlough scheme, it's usually six months. However, just on Monday, La Repubblica newspaper reported that the government is planning to extend that to the end of the year. For the self-employed, they were officially given a measly check of 600 euros per month. That's for the lower paid self-employed. Again, a lot of people didn't receive that. The biggest losers in lockdown were clearly people working in the informal sector and the Financial Times estimates that a fifth of the Italian economy is in the informal uh, sector. It was definitely an increase in uh, people receiving uh, payouts. So Caritas, the Catholic uh, charity, reported that during lockdown, it uh, gave assistance to new poor people for the first time um, coming for assistance. Uh, there were 450,000 people uh, getting handouts from Caritas, 61% of those uh, were Italian. Nevertheless, uh, not everybody suffered to the same extent, and average savings in Italy and indeed across the Eurozone actually increased during the lockdown period. Nevertheless, the Financial Daily Il Sole 24 Ore. Uh, reported on the 29th of June that a third of Italians are relying on savings which will run out by the end of August. So that will cause problems for them. In terms of assistance to companies, um, most companies received loans, not grants, with the exception of Alitalia, which is like a big black hole that keeps getting money thrown into it and is in the process of being nationalised. However, it's also reported that only a fifth of the money uh, applied for through banks uh, actually got to companies at the end of May. Many companies have not received those loans. Um, Eastat, the Italian Statistical Bureau, um, has reported that a half of all firms, which represents 37.8% of employment, will see a lack of liquidity for expenditure until the end of 2020. So the question is, will uh, those companies be able to survive? Um, in terms of what happens in the second quarter, it's not quite clear yet what the uh, figures will be for economic decline. But in the uh, first quarter, GDP declined by 5.3%. Um, and that's after the economy only grew by 0.1% in the fourth quarter 2019. In terms of what will happen the rest of the year, it's very difficult to forecast, but the IMF and the Bank of Italy foresee uh, falling GDP of up to around 13%. In terms of how the government has responded, um, it has made pledges of 180 billion euros, but of course pledges are not the same as spending. Uh, the government has increased its budget deficit. So the budget deficit 
in 2019 was minus 1.6%. Uh, that is now forecast to rise to nearly 12% by the end of uh, 2020. There has also been an increase in uh, government debt. So in April, government debt went up by 36 billion uh, euros and is now forecast to reach 157% of GDP. Um, that's compared with 135% uh, at the end of uh, 2019. So debt is a real key problem uh, in Italy. And as I mentioned earlier, the European uh, Central Bank has uh, been supporting Italy by buying bonds, uh, which lowers the interest rate debt. So March to April, the ECB bought close to 40 billion euros Italian debt. At the beginning of June, the ECB increased its emergency bond purchases by 600 billion euros. And indeed, it bought all of the new debt that was issued uh, by Italy in April to May, which was 51 billion euros. Indeed, the ECB ditched its own rules on proportionality in debt purchases in its pandemic emergency purchase programme. It overbought Italian debt and underbought German debt uh, and severely underbought uh, French debt. Um, on Monday, at the ECB board, one board member, uh, Isabel Schnabel, uh, did a speech saying that those deviations from the rules were necessary to prevent the fragmentation uh, of the Eurozone. But it seems that the ECB has gone from the last Euro crisis and Mario Draghi, uh, the president of the ECB, saying he would do whatever it takes. Now it seems that the ECB will do whatever it takes for as long as it takes. And the pandemic emergency purchase program has been extended to June 2021. And it should be noted, it is also not subject to the scrutiny of the German Constitutional Court, which only complained about the regular purchase. Now, while Italian public debt is a very big problem, um, Debt problem is not entirely what it seems, because I'm referring there only to public and government debt. Um, household debt in Italy um, is much lower than it is in many uh, European uh, countries, including Germany, Spain, France, the UK. Um, it's a third of what uh, Denmark household debt is. This is a percentage of uh, net disposable income. So I can just pull up a chart on this. And share screen here. If we look at the overall um, household debt there, Italy is in red. Um, you can see some of the other countries I mentioned uh, highlighted there. Uh, I'm not getting that, um, Dominic. I'm not getting the shared screen for some reason. Getting okay. it now? Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, so we can see Italian household debt uh, far lower than many other countries and some of those other countries I mentioned um, are highlighted. Um, also, if we look at uh, general private sector debt as a percentage of GDP, which includes household debt, but also company and institutional debt, um, Italy has less private sector debt than Spain, the UK, Belgium, Sweden, uh, the Netherlands, Ireland, and half the private sector debt of Luxembourg at the end of uh, 2018. Um, overall, Italian private sector debt to GDP has risen over the last 25 years, but it's actually fallen uh, since 2011. Now, when we're talking about Italian public government debt, um, the problem is very historical. Indeed, I would argue that a lot of the debt that is being paid now and the interest on that debt uh, is what I would call legacy debt. So in 1994, already, uh, the public debt was 121.8% of GDP. And that's in a period when interest rates were much higher, close to zero now. And indeed, that public debt doubled in the decade to 1994. So if we look at the roots of the public debt problem that Italy is still paying for, that goes very much back to the 1980s and the government led by Latino Crackley um, of the Socialist Party between 1983 and 1987 when the debt rose significantly. Now his uh, party collapsed, he was proven to be uh, corrupt, but then basically all the other political parties collapsed in the corruption scandals of the early 1990s, the Tangentopoli uh, scandals. Um, Silvio Berlusconi's government and Forza Italia were the beneficiaries of that, came to government in 1994 to 1995, but there were still many problems of high debt and rising wages. And this was a key period of change because the Christian and centre-left uh, establishment in Italy reacted with horror uh, to the uh, government collapse, uh, also to fighting uh, the Mafia war in Sicily. And basically, uh, Romano Prodi's PPI and the centre-left governments of 1996 to 2001 uh, gave up on political leadership in Italy and pushed Italy uh, towards joining the, joining the Euro. Obviously, there was a pull factor as well, uh, but this was a Key, uh, shift in rule in Italy. So what happened as a consequence, um, Italy joined the euro at the beginning of 2002. That was also the time that China came into the World Trade Organization just in December 2001. Um, so it was like a double whammy for the Italian economy. On the one hand, uh, Italy found it increasingly difficult to compete with manufactured goods from China. Um, on the other hand, entering the euro meant also it was subject to the stability and growth pact, which limited the extent to which Italy could stimulate uh, its budget uh, and boost growth. Um, indeed, if we exclude interest rates, um, Italy has run budget surpluses since 1992, uh, except crisis year of 2019. 
So it just hasn't been able to uh, invest. Uh, in fact, if we look at investment uh, over two decades in gross fixed capital uh, formation, uh, that has been flat. There has also been very weak investment in research and development. There's a percentage of uh, GDP since the year 2000, investment in research and development has been between 1% and 1.39%. Um, if we look at productivity um, over the last 20 years, uh, that has also been flat in terms of GDP per hour work uh, measured by the OECD. So we've seen now two decades of very low growth in Italy and by the period before the COVID crisis, 2019, uh, at the end of 2019, GDP had still not returned to the level it was uh, before the financial crisis in 2008 and 2009. So how has the Italian government uh, responded to this situation? Now, I would argue that the end of the Stability and Growth Pact, which has limited Italy's ability to boost growth and invest over the last two decades, that has now ended in the COVID crisis, uh, as has the rules on uh, state aid to businesses. I would argue that both of those things are an opportunity for the current government to invest and stimulate the economy. So the government actually called a big nine-day thinking on the Italian recovery, uh, which started on the 12th of June. Um, invited to that were all the government departments, employers, trade unions, and the opposition uh, parties. Uh, they came up with many ideas. Some of those were quite positive, like improving digitalization, investing in education, investing in uh, infrastructure and uh, transport. Um, but the agenda there was also skewed towards uh, the new Green Deal. And that's not really surprising because an introduction to that meeting was given by the European Commission President, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, uh, and her speech gave the usual platitudes about a new Green Deal and the importance of Italy uh, following the EU agenda. Also attending uh, that uh, meeting, the General Estates was the president of the uh, ECB, Christine Lagarde, and representatives of the IMF. So it's not really surprising that the Italian orientation seems to be very much to be responding to the COVID crisis in ways in which uh, the EU would expect. Um, and indeed, given that this government was largely molded by EU intervention, it's not surprising that its, current, its policy orientation is uh, skewed to the European Union. So it seems now that the details of uh, that nine-day thinking will be published uh, in September. And it seems very much that the Italian government is waiting on various European mechanisms to save Italy. Um, the first one is the uh, European budget and the recovery fund in that budget, will, which will be debated on the 17th and 18th of July again. Uh, but it's far from certain that that budget will be agreed and anyway would only start from the 1st of January 
next year. The other mechanism around which there's expectation is the European stability mechanism, um, but Italy has not yet applied for that. And there are a lot of political tensions within the government uh, about whether to apply. That has a lot of stigma attached to it. Uh, that might come into play more in the autumn uh, as problems mount. But the Prime Minister Conte has said that at the moment, the priority is to rely on the European Recovery Fund new uh, EU uh, budget. Um, however, relying on that uh, spending and making its current pledges, uh, one commentator in Politico uh, last week made the comment that it seems like the Italian government is drunk on EU recovery fund spending uh, promises. Uh, so I think that's a good point uh, on which Right, okay, there was a lot in that, um, and a possibly a few um, surprises for most people who have a stereotype of what the Italian economy is like as well. Um, so if you've got any uh, thoughts or questions, I, I mean, I just wanted to, uh, while people are considering what they want to say, I just want to ask Dominic, could you just explain who is running Italy at the moment? Because I know from the, uh, we, we kind of get lost because, I mean, I suppose it's because of the, proportional representation and the rise of the league and uh, five star and whatever um what yeah who, who, who is making up the government at the moment well the principal parties in the government are the democratic party which is seen as a left-leaning party um and the five star movement which is kind of seen as left-leaning uh, populist and uh, italy values of uh, matteo renzi which is a very small um, and more insignificant player. But those are the principal parties. However, as uh, I've written in many articles that have been published, many of the key personnel in the Italian government were not representative of the party system. So the Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte um, has never run for office. He's not a politician. Um, many of the key uh, ministers in the administration, including the economy minister, are not people who stood uh, for election. So many of the key personnel have been agreed in coalition discussions um, twice including uh, the kind of current government. It was reformed uh, last year and many of those discussions have involved key personnel uh, from the European Union uh, including Christine Lagarde who's commented uh, especially on economy ministers um, and uh, a former uh, president Commission for other personnel too. Oh, great. Um, uh, so, um, first hands up. So, if you do want to speak, uh, let me just remind you if you press on the participants button and then use raised hand so I can see that you'd like to speak. Um, so, Daniel, Daniel Benami, um, the, the floor is yours. I'm going to have to ask you to unmute yourself. Great. Thank you. Bye -bye. Yeah, uh, a couple of questions which in a way follow on from the question that Rob asked. Because, I mean, I don't follow Italy closely at all, but when I do look at it, it really does strike me how technocratic the leadership is, as you've just alluded to as well. And to me, that raises two questions. First of all, if they have the vision to get Italy, the Italian economy, off the ground. Because, as I'm sure you'd accept, spending money is not enough. You know, you have to have some kind of vision to restructure the economy, raise productivity, and does the current leadership have that at all? 
And, that, the, and the technocratic outlook also seems to me to make it very positive towards the EU, again, as you've alluded to. So is there any chance of distancing itself uh, from the EU? I mean, I know nominally you have the five star movement and you have the league and they're, they're quite critical. But it seems to me when it comes down to it, Italy still very much goes along with the whole technocratic outlook. Great. Okay, I can take another couple and then I'll, I'll come back to you, Dominic. So, Giovanna, if you could unmute yourself, that would be great. Right, okay. Sorry, I'm, I'm still learning. Okay, so well, I, I live in the UK, but I have a fair family in Italy, so sometime I go there and I try to stay a bit up to date. I mean, I, I couldn't follow all of you because it was a technical problem, so I had to get out. But my, what I, I understood, though, that you seem to agree with the dominant economic uh, economies to say that Italy has not been growing for since the financial crisis has gone backward and that there has been a really um, a deepening of, uh, of economic decline. And there is absolutely no doubt that this uh, crisis, uh, this COVID has, uh, has worsened the situation. So when I talk to my relatives and people that I know, they, they keep saying, well, you know, uh, we're just waiting to see if the EU really help us, you know, will, will they really uh, give us this uh, money, will they really um, kind of uh, change, uh, change their attitude to us. So my question to you was, uh, um, what would you say to these people in terms of this budget and grants uh, that the EU is now uh, proposing? Um, uh, do you think that that could, um, could really help sort out some of, some of the problems? Or, or um, and, and what is the attitude of the of the right now in terms of this debate? Okay, great. Thank you very much. Useful questions there, uh, Phil Mullen. Again, Phil, can you unmute yourself? Sure. Hi. Right, th thanks very much, Dominic. I, I, uh, it was very interesting and uh, very helpful. Um, I, I thought you explained very well the. Um, the sort of two-edged or double-edged uh, characteristic of the relationship between Italy as a nation and, and, the, uh, and the European Union, both uh, the way you describe that day-to-day uh, -day sort of material dependence on, uh, and at the moment sort of um, appeal to the European Union or, or hope that the European Union is going to continue to come through, whether it's through the ECB or through the recovery plan. And the other side of that, uh, the way that that has sort of stunted the development of a sort of a national economic uh, plan. That sort of dependence has also taken the pressure off in some ways. So I thought you explained that very well. So arising from that, a couple of questions. One is uh, at a national level, um, Italy, I think it remains the only G7 country which uh, took the rather bold decision of signing up to China's Belt and Road Initiative, which, you know, strategically was quite a sort of a break from the West. Um, is there any element within that which is a strategic economic um, driver of potentially seeing China as, uh, a, as an alternative sort of economic partner? Uh, is, did, did that play uh, within the discussions which took place? Uh, and then turning to the other side from the national to the regional side, Dominic, you've always or, or frequently in your articles, you've stressed the importance of region, the importance, or the peculiar importance of regionalism within uh, uh, Italian politics. 
Um, and given what you've described and what uh, Daniel also referred to in terms of the, the, not only the weakness of the national political class, but also the aloofness and the, the undemocratic, as you said, the unelected nature of it, is, um, is there any opportunity within the regional identities within uh, uh, Italy for the scope for looking at regional sort of economic plans, regional economic transformation plans or whatever? I mean, I appreciate there's a danger within that in terms of aggravating the north-south divide and so on. But, but uh, you know, is, could there be something positive within that in terms of uh, not waiting for Europe, not waiting for China, not waiting for Rome to provide economic answers, but for people locally to uh, begin to take some responsibility? Is there any indication of that? And perhaps, uh, perhaps it's completely unrelated, but just a factual question. You, we knew about the sardines movement, which was only a few months ago, really, which was putting quite a lot of pressure on Liga. Has anything come out of that? Is that a sort of a grassroots movement or is it just a flash in the pan? Great, okay, sorry, uh, I could not unmute myself. Um, right, Dominic, do you want to come back on, on those? Um, uh, there's a fair amount on the table there. There's an awful lot on the table there. Um, I'm going to start with Giovanna's uh, questions. Um, yes, undoubtedly Italy uh, has gone backwards in terms of growth over the last uh, couple of uh, decades. In terms of your relatives and their questions about will Europe help us, it's a difficult question and there's one reason why in my introduction I focused a lot on what has happened rather than what hasn't happened. Um, because the principal focus, as I mentioned, of the idea that uh, Europe will uh, come to the assistance of um, Italy is the uh, multinational framework uh, in the next EU budget, which, as I said, is being discussed on the 16th of July. The difficulty is there's a lot of disagreement uh, about the quantities and uh, the distribution of grants and loans uh, in that budget. Um, in addition, it's not all what it seems. Um, so the budget as it's currently uh, being presented uh, proposes grants to Italy of 81 billion euros and a slightly more level of loans, which is 90 billion euros. Of course, loans would add to the debt, um, so that's not all good. So although Italy will receive more than any other country, if that's agreed, um, and there's frantic diplomacy going on every day before that uh, conference uh, in an attempt to get that agreed, uh, even if it is agreed, uh, firstly, Italy is third largest contributor to the EU budget. Um, so we're actually paying towards some of that money that's uh, coming to Italy. Uh, one economist I read said that uh, those grants and loans over four years uh, would be a net gain to Italy of 17 to 23 uh, billion euros uh, per year, which is not a very big amount in relation to the amounts uh, I said earlier. So there are lots of problems in terms of um, whether that will even be agreed. But even if it is, it wouldn't start until the 1st of January. So that's too late for all those companies which don't have enough money to get to the end of the year. Now, the second area of discussion is the European stability mechanism. Um, 
which there's a lot of uh, hesitation about because once you're into that, you kind of get the reputation of being a failed state as Greece was uh, when it went through a similar experience. Um, that proposes 2% uh, of GDP uh, being released and that being tied to healthcare spending. Um, at the moment, the Democratic Party and Italy of Values in the government are in favour of that. Uh, the Five Star Movement is against it, as are uh, many of the more right-wing uh, opposition parties like uh, the League and the Brothers of Italy. So, at the moment, uh, the Prime Minister Conte, um, in fact, he made a statement uh, today saying that we are focusing on the next EU budget and the recovery fund, not the European um, stability mechanism. Um, but I think, although there is not a majority in the Senate at the moment in favour of the European stability mechanism, that might change in the autumn um, if things get worse, which is quite likely. Um, so coming on to Phil's question, and I'm going to come back to Daniel's because it's a kind of bigger question. Um, on the question about China and the Belt and Road, um, China does have a lot of uh, investment in Italy and there are very close uh, economic ties. A lot of Chinese people living in Italy as well. Um, but I think it was more about Italy hedging its bets. Um, I mean, it might be the case that if the EU really lets down Italy, that Italy could move towards China. But I think at the moment, uh, that's very difficult to imagine. In fact, I was just thinking at the estate's general thinking on the economy, while there were representatives from the EU and the IMF and the uh, uh, ECB there, it would be unimaginable to have some representatives of uh, senior uh, and leading um, Chinese institutions at any kind of uh, meeting like that at the moment. So uh, in the short term, I can't see it, but if things fall apart with the EU, that might happen. On Phil's question about regionalism, um, there is actually quite an interesting tension going on at the moment because many of the regions have told the central government that they've run out of money, um, especially those that have uh, spent a lot on uh, healthcare because healthcare is decentralized uh, in Italy. Um, and uh, actually, yesterday, uh, Conte, the Prime Minister, uh, indicated there was going to be an additional 20 billion euros uh, put into the budget, and some of that would be distributed to the regions. So there is a real tension rising there between the regions and the central government. However, your question was more about uh, regional identities. Um, I mean, you know, inevitably the coronavirus has exaggerated the regional uh, tensions. Um, I don't see a big move towards uh, regionalism um, in the short term, unless maybe those economic tensions um, exaggerate. On your question about the sardine movement, um, I mean, that was a movement based around people cramming into uh, public squares in cities and protesting, a kind of left-orientated uh, movement. So obviously COVID killed that because you couldn't have public protests and, uh, you know, there's a kind of lack of uh, social distancing. Um, so it was pretty kind of flimsy anyway, singing songs and um, no real kind of leadership behind it. So um, I'm not surprised that that uh, 
seems to have uh, fallen aside at the moment. Um, so finally, coming on to uh, Daniel's questions. Um, I mean, you know, there are some elements in the current government which I think have some vision and, you know, particularly ideas around uh, improving infrastructure. Um, they really want to speed up justice, introduce a lot of new uh, digital uh, technologies. Um, but there are other proposals which I think are uh, really strange, like, um, you know, particularly recruiting a new layer of uh, bureaucracy. Um, and uh, many of these ideas haven't been uh, fully uh, thrashed out. Uh, one of the ideas is to build the bridge between the mainland and Sicily, um, which could be quite a desirable project, although there's already been one billion euros spent on that and not one stone laid, uh, which is largely the fault of uh, the Berlusconi uh, government. So I think the, the key problem, as you mentioned in your comments, Daniel, is the orientation towards kind of pleasing uh, the EU agenda and things like the uh, Green Deal. Uh, and not kind of sufficiently moving beyond that. And I think, you know, sectors, the Italian economy uh, responding in different ways to this. Obviously, tourism is a very big uh, question because 15% of GDP is dependent on uh, tourism and 13% of employment. So this summer is going to be really crucial. And uh, the opening up of Italy seems to have improved things, although the numbers are still uh, quite down and have come especially late for German tourists for their early summer holidays uh, in Italy. But I think more widely, um, you know, some of the uh, key exporting companies, uh, which is a real strength, especially in northern Italy, uh, do with a, a lot more support. Um, I think also some of the digital services uh, could really be expanded and developed. Um, needless to say, some of the heavy industry, uh, some of the steel plants, uh, which are, are very heavily indebted, uh, what I think Phil might refer to as zombie companies, um, continuing to support those, I think, is a mistake. Um, so there needs to be a bit more uh, vision there. Um, in terms of your final question, Daniel, about whether uh, there could be a distancing um, from the EU, People have probably heard there has been quite a big increase in distrust in European institutions during the COVID crisis in Italy, um, especially around the initial uh, responses to kind of health equipment and things like that. Uh, so discontent with the EU institutions uh, has risen quite significantly over the last few months. However, I would say that discontent very different from distancing uh, and leaving. And uh, there are some fledgling uh, movements uh, that are calling for Italy to leave the Euro and the EU, but particularly the League has not uh, taken that up. That might change because the League's popularity is going down um, and the League's leader, uh, uh, Matteo Salvini, is also uh, facing the challenge uh, of the Veneto uh, Governor Luca Zaia. So maybe that might push uh, Salvini towards a more uh, anti-European agenda. I, I somehow doubt it, although he is a complete uh, opportunist. Um, when I think about your question and distancing from the EU, I think actually the kind of British model 
is quite useful to think about because if you think about the original Brexit vote, which expressed very strong uh, distrust and rejection of EU institutions, that didn't immediately translate into a positive force for leaving the EU until the December 2019 election when there was a government that could muster the support uh, to actually push through the formal uh, leaving of uh, the European Union. So it's obviously a very big step to go from increasing distrust to actually people trusting an alternative. And it seems to me that most uh, Italians still distrust their own political system more than Europe. Right. Okay, great. Thank you very much. I've got a couple of questions for you uh, to, to quickly throw in. Uh, one was on the origins of the virus, which you know, we've, we discovered that, um, in fact, there was lots of slightly furtive Italian, sorry, Chinese manufacturing going on in northern Italy. And obviously, there's a lot of finger pointing at the fact that uh, many of these workers were coming from Wuhan, and that's how the virus uh, got to Italy. Um, how much of a discussion was that at the time? And also just how important is Chinese ownership of companies in Italy at the moment? Is it still pretty small or is, it, is that a growing trend? And also, I miss, it's a, a, a much broader question, probably difficult to answer, but to how what extent is not having its own currency a barrier for Italy getting out of things? So in the discussion in the UK, it's very much about printing money or quantitative easing going on uh, as a as a because Brit British government can uh, you know, issue debt in sterling and as much as it wants, or it can get the Bank of England to sort of create money out of thin air to a, a degree. To what extent is that that the fact that Italy can't do that uh, 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 an object of public discussion in, uh, and in terms of the eurozone? Um, so I'll put those onto the table now. So right, uh, Paul Reeves, if you'd like to unmute yourself and make your points. I'm assuming you can hear right. two buttons to press there. Um, it, I, as Dominic knows, I go to Italy quite a lot, but I'm not for obvious reasons been recently, so I'm a bit behind it. But thinking back about when I visit Italy, uh, some of the the uh, sort of trends and topics for discussion maybe a year or two ago was around things like population, like the fact that Italy's got a, a relatively, it's got almost zero growth rate, I think, in terms of population. And in kind of related to that, it's got very, or has had, and probably still even more, got very high youth um, unemployment. So I, I just wondered if the, the population factor fits in in any shape or form to uh, what particularly, particularly can go on in, in Italy. Um, the other thing that I always think of Italy is, yes, it has got a surprisingly well-developed and large uh, industrial sector is particularly strong on machine tools. It's got a large shipbuilding industry, although that is quite an old um, uh, industry. And I think uh, at one point there was talk about France taking it over. Um, so I suppose my, my point there is that to me, Italy seems it's not quite, it's not atomized or fragmented, but it's, it's heavily built on lots of small to medium sized type industries. I, I, don't, I can't think of many large scale uh, concerns that that Italy kind of has it obviously has fear etc around automotive but that's quite a larger um, it's quite an old old sort of um, 
sector. So I'm just wondering, I guess, connecting those things together, I wonder how the productivity problem can actually be addressed in Italy, given that kind of fragmentation. And the original question I was going to ask very briefly was around, and it's been addressed partly, um, I, there's always been this tension between the North and South, and I just wondered if there's any signs of probably going too far to say Italy's going to split down the middle, etc., or something like that, but is that still... Is, is that significant, I guess? Is the North-South significant politically? That's okay, it. great. Okay. Uh, Jenny Cunningham? You might have to unmute yourself again, Jenny. Hello. I think I'm unmuted. Yeah. I think my question follows on, actually, from Paul's um, comments and question. Um, you made the point that Italy has had um, sorry, Dominic, you've made the point that Italy's had a sort of really chronic low growth problem, um, particularly exacerbated by the uh, stability and growth pact, um, and then went on to say that that pact had actually been suspended, and um, that in itself you saw as perhaps a good thing, obviously. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering, are there any growth areas, are there any potential um, growth areas that can actually overcome this lack of product, you know, the, the lack of productivity, low productivity? And does Italy have any um, aspirations in terms of research and development, um, um, you know, through universities or um, through particular companies? Thanks. Okay, thanks very much. Uh, and finally, Para. Um, okay, you can hear me, yeah? Um, yeah. Uh, Dominic, you mentioned that Italy has got a, um, and I'm, from what I've read, I think it's quite large an informal economy. I just wondered whether you could uh, say a little bit about how they coped uh, during the crisis, given that anything that the state has given people would all have to be documented, uh, workers, if you like. Um, I did read somewhere that it's given a new um, uh, um, surge of activity, if you like, given the, the mafia uh, a bit of activity because uh, informal people can't get any aid. How true is that? Um, uh, very quickly, the second one is on tourism. Um, as you say, Italy depends a high percentage of its income on tourism, and tourism definitely fell by about 95% in March, as you'd expect. Um, and I know that um, Sicily, for instance, is apparently doing quite a lot to lure people back. So is that a major debate in the sense uh, within Italy, how they can uh, encourage uh, um, foreigners and their own people uh, to travel more. Okay, great. Uh, so I'm just going to take James Woodhouse and, and then I'm going to uh, give Dominic a chance to come back in. Dominic, you're going to have to sort of pick and choose your things you want yeah. to take up because uh, we're sort of limited on time. Uh, so, James. Can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, I just picking up a little bit on um, uh, Paul's sort of uh, approach. The, you know, there is fiat. Uh, I wondered how performance was in particular sectors for which it Italy used to be renowned. There's cars, 
There's fr fridges within the sit. There's apparel of all sorts with uh, all the fashion brands and so on. As colleagues have mentioned, machine tools, all, uh, Italy's surprisingly strong on them and did a lot of business with Russia uh, in machine tools. It's, uh, so the broad question of mechanization, Dominic, would be useful to hear. Um, there's a special thing about Italy, which is its historical relationship with North Africa and oil supplies. And that was what, you know, what a lot of the post-war energy policy was all about. Now succeeded, as Dominic knows very well, he's written about it, uh, by silly solar panels uh, subsidies, just what the mafia likes. Uh, so I wondered if you could comment about energy, because Italy's um, relationship with Africa has often been de depended, uh, has depended on that. Um, where Italy has fallen down is in uh, R&D and also in IT. It used to have Olivetti in hardware and Telecom Italia was pretty good years ago, but that's all collapsed. Uh, is it still good in any aspects of telecoms? And finally, in Italy, like France, um, there's a question of agriculture. How backward is it? Uh, how interested is uh, the government in fixing that? Or is it, uh, contrary to my impression, unimportant now? Great, okay. I'm gonna take Sabina, but you'll have to be very, very quick. Uh, if you could be, please. Uh, um, yeah, hi. Yeah, okay. It's um, just a question, because I've read um, Ashoka's Modi's book, and he seems to think that the um, new fault line of the EU does run straight through Italy. And he also seems to think that the whatever it takes, as long as it takes, it's going to have to end sometime, not least because of Germany and the possibility of Italy defaulting, the state defaulting. So I found that your, your introduction very, very interesting. But one of the points uh, Modi makes is that Italy also has a massive problem with its banking sector. So it, it, it's, it has a completely um, over, you know, uh, over-dimensioned banking sector. There have been several scandal banks. And he says, as long as that problem isn't solved, Italy's problems won't be solved. So I just wondered what you said about that. What would you have to say about that? Thank you, Sabina. That was a bit Blair Witch, but um, uh, very good, in interesting questions. Right, Dominic, I'm going to have to uh, limit you to about three minutes. So, like I said, uh, pick and choose your topics. Sorry. Uh, true. I've yes. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. So true on the banking sector. There's a big banking takeover going to on today and the government has bailed out lots of banks, but it's true that the banking sector is very over bloated. If you have shares in Italian banks, sell them. Um, in terms of uh, James's points, uh, difficult to comment on all those sectors, but on your point about mechanization, um, one thing that was a result uh, particularly of Matteo Renzi's government and the flexible uh, labor laws that he introduced, um, he reduced the fixed term contracts uh, many workers and the permanent contracts and made basically labor cheaper, which was a disincentive for employers to invest in labor saving uh, devices and raise productivity. So just a quick point there on uh, mechanization. Um, coming down to uh, some of Rob's points. Um, Yes, there are a lot of uh, Chinese uh, ownership of Italian companies. I haven't really got time to get into that. Uh, yes, there are a lot of Chinese people living in Lombardy, although no proof that they uh, were the source of the coronavirus there. 
an absolute sense. There was more concern about two Chinese uh, tourists who were uh, identified with the coronavirus at the start of the pandemic. Um, the currency problem is an issue because, of course, Italy cannot do what it traditionally did to boost exports, which is devalue the lira. So that's why there are some of the fledgling movements uh, are against the euro rather than the EU. Um, on to Paul's points um, around population. The data isn't out on this um, yet, kind of uh, post-COVID. But I think there will be some quite interesting population shift. Uh, firstly, because obviously lots of young people who were working abroad have moved back to Italy. Um, and tragically, many elderly people have died in the COVID crisis. Now, a fifth of the adult population were pensioners before the uh, COVID crisis hit. So that is going to change the dynamics around population. But a key priority should be uh, better education and training uh, for the young to reduce the unemployment problems and people um, leaving. Um, on uh, Jenny's points about more positive areas of growth, this actually ties into some points that James uh, Parra and uh, Paul raised. Um, I mean, it is true that Italy is very strong uh, in industrial production. Uh, in fact, before COVID, uh, it had the second highest share of industrial production in the EU after Germany. Um, it's very strong in pharmaceuticals. Um, it's very strong in uh, medical equipment, um, as people mention, uh, machine tools. Um, and actually, if you look at it, um, Italy uh, has been a net exporter of goods and services as a percentage of GDP uh, for many, many years. And so really, that's the area uh, that uh, the government should be focusing on, is how to boost those exports further uh, and to improve the stronger areas of the economy. I'll leave it there. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Dominic. That was a very, very useful discussion and, uh, and certainly enlightening for me, I'm sure for many other people as well. Right. Uh, with a sharp turn, we now go to all the way to South Africa. Uh, 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 I'll uh, hand over to uh, Russell uh, to uh, introduce his thoughts on South Africa. Uh, can you unmute yourself, Russell? Sorry. Can you hear me now? Yeah, brilliant. Sorry. So uh, Zoom doesn't seem to be letting me unmute people for them anyway. So anyway, over to you. Thanks, uh, Rob. Uh, hello, everybody from Rhodes Village, uh, Eastern Cape, South Africa. There is still something named after Cecil Rhodes in the world, believe it or not. Um, uh, very, very cold here. Um, I'm at the foot of the mountains, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave, I'll leave that now. Um, I just need to, uh, try and, uh, share my PowerPoint. I'm doing the unpardonable and using PowerPoint for, for this presentation. So you'll have to bear with me one second. Okay, here we go. Okay, can people see that? It's just coming up now. Yes, yeah, we can see it now. Okay, I think I just have to uh, uh, do a full screen. Okay, is that okay? 
Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, this is a photograph that I've used for for the uh, for the opening slide of uh, social distancing in a supermarket uh, parking lot. So we we do do some social distancing in South Africa, although not very effectively. Um, I start off by saying that uh, the coronavirus has exposed the disastrous state of the South African economy, uh, its over-dependence on mineral exports, um, and that's been uh, pretty well wiped out by the lack of international demand in the current situation. No doubt there's some people in the audience who are better informed on, on minerals than I am, but uh, we can discuss that in the in the discussion phase afterwards. Um, secondly, government's half-hearted uh, intervention measures on uh, in the COVID-19 period have pretty much been too little, uh, too late. This is a picture of people queuing uh, for food parcels uh, somewhere just outside Johannesburg. It's been a pretty desperate situation. And... Uh, a particularly harsh and oppressive uh, lockdown, and we've we've had more than a hundred days of lockdown now, have not done what they were uh, cracked up to do, which was to give the health system enough time to prepare for the pandemic. But they've done huge economic damage by virtually closing down the economy. Most key sectors have been pretty much shut down. Um, we, we've had a pretty brutal state already before lockdown. I mean, uh, South African police kill more than three times the number of people per capita than police in the United States. Uh, if you look back to 2017, 2018, the, the deaths in custody and by police action were absolutely horrific. Lockdown has accentuated those tendencies. In the first couple of weeks, at least 12 people were murdered by the police and the army, which was brought onto the streets. And even the middle class have started waking up to the, the horrible situation of state violence um, against, um, against the masses. Um, just trying to get rid of... I can't read my own slides, actually, but um, the public health system, uh, serious problem. It was already before the coronavirus outbreak, not coping with TB, HIV, malnutrition. About a third of, of kids in South Africa suffer from, from stunting, which shows the, the extent of the malnutrition problem. As I said, lockdown was meant to buy time. But the public health system was overwhelmed already, even before the peak in the, in the coronavirus, which is only happening now. So beds are already full, not enough medical staff, many are infected, unable to work, unions refusing to work in many cases, ICU bed capacity grossly in, uh, insufficient, only about 3,300 beds, the huge backlog in, in testing, very limited contra uh, contact tracing and testing, and workplace precautions are very uneven and they're now anticipating about 48,000 deaths by November although our statistics are fairly dodgy as well unfortunately um, and then there's the other side of it which I, I think is, is, has happened in many countries but uh, because of, of, of concentration on, on the virus um, 
other health uh, measures have, have fallen by the wayside, particularly things like tuberculosis, which is a major problem in South Africa. Um, HIV uh, regular treatment is not happening. Vaccinations of kids are not happening. Um, and that's going to create a, a longer term health burden for the country. So uh, a likely rise in mortality uh, as a result of uh, decline in treatment for, for AIDS, TB and other illnesses. A rise in uh, children suffering from malnutrition. Where I live, you can actually, it's quite visible um, in, 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 on, on the street. Um, and some research forecasts have said that the lockdown will cause a loss of life at least 30 times of what uh, the coronavirus may cause. Uh, so pretty counterproductive. Okay, the, the economy. Um, key planks of, of state policy, to, just to summarize, uh, government was supposed to provide funds to pay wages, but you could argue it was too little too late and very difficult to access. Support to business through tax deferments uh, um, and loans, but there's been a poor uptake mainly because it's been very bureaucratic and difficult for businesses to access. Uh, and interestingly, all these support programs to the economy have had a heavily ideological bent. So, I mean, the, the best known ones are obviously banning of alcohol sales, banning of tobacco sales. Tobacco sales are still banned at this point, although the president has just announced, I think, that they're going to bring an end to that. But other peculiar things like you, can't, you couldn't buy shoes with open toes in the shops, etc., uh, etc. Et there was like highly irrational forms of um, industrial policy measures that they were, they were attempting to implement through the coronavirus measures. So we, we haven't implemented industrial policy adequately ever, but come the coronavirus, uh, the Minister uh, of, the, uh, of Trade and Industry tries to start implementing industrial policy through the back door via coronavirus measures. And uh, a key problem is very limited government capacity to implement the programs that it's promised to implement. Um, to business, there's a 200 billion rand credit guarantee scheme. Uh, bear in mind, a rand is 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 uh, about one twentieth of a pound. Um, uh, loans to businesses with decreased turnover uh, was supposed to be disbursed via the big banks at low rates uh, with certain conditionalities, but the uptake has been very low. There was a three-week at least delay in implementation, so wages were cut, workers were uh, retrenched from their jobs. There was a uh, 230 million, which isn't very much uh, relief fund for the tourism sector. It's particularly important where we are, but virtually nobody uh, managed to get hold of any money uh, in tourism relief. And there was a, uh, a stipulation that only black owned businesses could get that money. And um, uh, of course, very few tourism businesses are owned by black people. So in the end, only 2% of applicants for the tourism funds were successful, ridiculous figures. Then we have the informal economy. La government likes to go on about how much it does for the informal economy in South Africa, which is a pretty big uh, thing because uh, many people cannot make a living except through scratching it through the informal sector, so-called spaza shops. So uh, they were supposed to support uh, these uh, 
informal uh, traders through bulk buying opportunities, through credit facilities, through business skills support training. They weren't able to give support tra uh, training support in the best of times. So how they thought they would do it now is beyond me. But they also then try to formalize the informal sector by saying, if you want our support, you have to formalize your tax situation and your unemployment uh, insurance situations. So obviously, most informal uh, outfits haven't been able or willing to do that. So the very slow uptake by the end of April, so like after about a month, only 88 of 130,000 traders who applied had actually got anything, virtually nothing in other words. Um, so many, if not most small traders were forced out of business to join the ranks of the unemployed. And one of the more obscene parts of it was the exclusion of foreign owned shops on a pretty much openly xenophobic basis. Uh, foreigners who are the most successful in the informal sector were excluded from any support, but were prohibited really from, from operating as well. Uh, there were all these horrible scenes of, of informal traders being dragged away by the police for trying to sell in the street and make a living. Um, agriculture, the agriculture support fund, 1.2 billion rand, uh, but only for smallholder and communal farmers really. And uh, of the 55,000 or so applications, only about 27% had been approved to date because government was obsessive about saying women and youth should be the uh, beneficiaries. The dominant commercial sector, which is a pretty big employer, although not a huge contributor to GDP, got absolutely no support whatsoever. Uh, mainly, I suppose, again, because those are mostly traditionally white farmers. Um, maybe not nice people, but they're an important part of the economy. And then we come to the workers. Uh, 40 billion rand wage support was promised. Uh, special temporary employer uh, employee relief scheme. Uh, 3,500 per month uh, for, for three months. But it, was, it proved very difficult for the employers to access that, as usual. Uh, a lot of bureaucracy, backlogs in payouts, uneven implementation, and the system, which is electronic, periodically collapses. Uh, so by the 19th of June, only 8% of applicants had been paid out. You can imagine what this means for workers in, in, in the formal economy, uh, getting nothing, basically, or the employers, if they're able to, having to rely totally on their own resources. So employment has collapsed. And uh, the normal unemployment insurance fund, which uh, has been a long-standing thing, has been unable to cope with vastly increased numbers of applicants of people who've been put out of work. And then we come to social assistance um, for those people who, who don't have any formal employment. This is a picture of people queuing for food parcels um, outside Johannesburg, all these nightmarish scenes of, uh, of people queuing. Obviously, social distancing is, is not a thing. Um, social assistance, uh, obviously, they, they promised increased social grants to ensure that uh, low-income South Africans survived the shutdown. Um, a special social relief of distress grant was supposed to benefit 10 to 15 million unemployed people who didn't have any other income for six months. And child support grant, which is a very important thing in South Africa. It's a kind of 
hidden form of, 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 of social benefit. People survive off the, the grant that's given for their children, was increased by 300 rand a month, and then 500 rand per caregiver. And government showed really bad faith on this because originally it was assumed for each child you would get that increase, but it turned out no, only the caregiver would, would, would get that extra grant. So um, even that was, was very stingily applied. And it took about six weeks before any grants were paid. Um, only about, by the 18th of June, fairly recently, only 1.2 million out of 6.2 million applications, which is less than 20%, had been paid out. And implementation's been appalling, inefficiencies of the Social Security Agency, and stringent qualifying criterias being, uh, criteria being demanded of, of people before they could get anything. Um, so as a consequence of that, it's estimated about 2 million more people have fallen below the food poverty line, which is another real shocker. Okay, so just to, to sum up uh, the so-called government stimulus package, um, before uh, COVID-19 hit, uh, uh, Finance Minister Tito Mbaweni uh, announced a pretty uh, stringent austerity budget, and that budget has essentially remained intact. I mean, the main concern beforehand was that government employees were going to be hit by this. The government said they were not going to stick to old arrangements with the unions to, to pay um, inflation-linked increases. Um, the reality is the new COVID-19 package has a very lim limited impact on the budget. Go government is not forking out much more than it was originally going to uh, as a consequence of COVID-19. Above the line measures, in other words, um, uh, spending that has a, an impact on levels, on levels of debt are limited to 160 billion. Um, 130 billion of this will be financed by a reprioritization of spending within the envelope of the austerity budget. So they're not really forking out much more money than they were originally intending to fork out. Um, so the essential continuation of government's austerity budget will mean 130 billion is cut from provincial and local grants for social infrastructure, including housing, water, transport, uh, on top of 100 billion cuts that were announced in February. Uh, 230 billion is cut from infrastructure uh, spending in impoverished areas. And uh, in exchange, there's only about 50 billion given in social grants. And I've already explained how poorly these have been uh, handled and paid out. Um, New money injected into the economy, I can't read my own thing, is, is, uh, th is only 30 billion or uh, under 1% uh, of GDP. Um, reprioritization of existing, sorry, reprioritization of existing government sp spending uh, within this uh, austerity framework is not really a fiscal stimulus. So government has, has, has really not come to the party in, in any genuine sense of the word. Um, okay, some consequences of all this. And this happens to be a picture of three ladies uh, carrying firewood on their heads, which they walk a couple of kilometers down the road to fetch on an almost daily basis. So this, this is a kind of 
this is social welfare in South Africa, women fetching firewood. Um, so the inadequate measures of government have negatively affected business, but particularly the large informal sector and the existing and newly unemployed. Um, GDP is expected to contract by at least 7.1% this year. Uh, I, I, I got these from World Bank figures. Um, this is the deepest contraction in the century, uh, a century and 8% lower than they previously were forecasting. Faster growth is likely to be constrained by fiscal tightening. Uh, and uh, there are likely, if the economy starts to move again, to be persistent power supply disruptions, which South Africa was suffering for the last few years because of the semi-collapse of the uh, electricity supply uh, system and repair to, to the national grid. Um, and if uh, uh, COVID-19 uh, sort of lockdown restrictions persist, it's going to make things even worse and the recession will be even deeper. Um, and just to look at unemployment, I'm, I'm getting to the end of this. The numbers that are available uh, at the moment capture what you could say is the crisis before the crisis, before the COVID-19 crisis, but don't yet fully capture the devastating impact of lockdown. So there are about 10.8 million unemployed, which is an increase of about 400,000 during the first quarter. Um, and uh, since 2008, since December 2008, which obviously reflected the, the last uh, world economic crisis, it's up by 4.9 million people. Unemployment rate, this is the expanded rate. It's not the rate that the government likes to give. They like to give a so-called narrow uh, rate of unemployment. 44% uh, for black Africans, females 48% in the Eastern Cape where I am, which is one of the more underdeveloped parts of the country, 49%. And in some parts of the Eastern Cape, you find up to about 80% unemployment. And certainly after COVID, uh, unemployment will be over 50%. And you have to ask, is a society really viable anymore when 50% when of people are unemployed? Uh, and just to, to look at the kind of situation we're facing in public health at the moment, which was supposed to have a breathing space to sort itself out, the Eastern Cape is a particularly bad example, although the, the crisis started in the Western Cape where COVID hit first. The system has collapsed in this province. Uh, at the most basic level, there's not enough oxygen for everyone. So people in hospital are literally fighting each other for oxygen cylinders. Um, there are not enough hands to care for anyone, for everyone. Medical staff are, are ill. Uh, nobody can get into the hospital, so there are no witnesses to what's actually going on. And doctors fear being fired for speaking out. Nothing was done about promises to make more personnel available. Uh, promised extra PPE has not been supplied. And we've got an emergency field hospital, which I think is supposed to cater for about a thousand people but they haven't been able to find any staff for it. That was partly funded by Volkswagen, which is based at Utenhagen near Port Elizabeth. Um, in Port Elizabeth, which has got a population of 967,000, there are only two ambulances running at the moment. Um, and our COVID-19 cases uh, are likely to double in the next, uh, in the next 10 days. Um, by Friday night, we had nearly 22,000 cases and 371 deaths. That's in the Eastern Cape. 
uh, estimates are we're going to have 441,000 cases by the middle of next month and over a thousand deaths. Uh, but we can't we can't really give the right kind of care. And uh, the spokesperson for the Eastern Cape Health Department was quoted in the local press as saying he hadn't been made aware of these issues. Um, so you could sum up by saying that government's uh, support measures have been a disastrous failure. We need urgent action to support livelihoods, to, to keep people from starving, to advance people's rights, uh, to sustain businesses, and prevent economic and social collapse. But the old fiscally conservative line that was put forward in the, in the budget before COVID hit uh, continues. Um, so ultimately, we like to see, to see uh, continued economic st stagnation and decline, further reinforcement of our enclave economy, in other words, pockets of wealth, pockets of uh, uh, socially exclusive areas in the middle of a sea of poverty, and inevitably more repression. I mean, only today there have been horrific uh, pieces of video from the Western Cape of people being evicted from their shacks, uh, a, a naked man being chased around by the police and beaten. Um, so we're not improving on, on our PR either. Uh, so you could ask what level of disaster will it take for government to change their policies? Thanks. Okay, thank you for a, a um, quite dep <laughs> uh, depressing um, Sorry. <laughs> uh, these things. Uh, so, could you stop the sharing as well, um, Russell? So, yeah, I'm trying to work out to, how to do that. Um, but technically challenged out here in the sticks. I'm sorry. Um, let me just. Right. right. Okay. I think I've done oh, it okay. actually. So, that's You've great. Done it Thank well. you very much. Okay. Uh, right. Thank you. Uh, thank you again. Um, if for nothing else, making the British government look competent. Um, <laughs> depressing stuff. Anyway, so uh, uh, anyway, over to uh, you for uh, your thoughts and questions. Uh, Jagdish has had his hand up for quite a while, so uh, over to you, Jagdish. Could you unmute yourself? Sorry. Yeah. Hi. Hi, Russell. Uh... It's been uh, 40 years since we were down in the streets of East London, so I haven't seen you for a long time. Uh, look like you haven't aged at all. Are you keeping all right? <laughs> it looks like there's no light in the background there, Russell. You must be in a pretty, pretty, pretty tough circumstances there. Uh, I just wanted to ask a couple of basic stuff, Russell. Um, in a couple of your slides, you mentioned uh, more kind of recently, uh, the number of deaths has been something like 1,040 or something. But much earlier on, you were saying that there's prediction of 48,000 people dying. I don't know whether, uh, whether I misread uh, the numbers on your slides, if you could explain that. And one of the things that is a little bit controversial here is, the, um, is that the number of black and minority ethnic people who are dying compared to white people. Uh, have you got any idea about what the figures or breakdown is like in South Africa in terms of blacks, whites versus coloreds and so on? Uh, or is the more stark uh, breakdown between say rich and poor and so on or age profiles? 
Uh, if you got any thoughts on that, that would be uh, that'd be really good. Okay, great. Um, uh, uh, Jenny. Again, you have to unmute yourself, sorry. Right. Right. Me. Yeah. Well, that was depressing beyond belief. Um, you know, from a, a, a country that's the second largest, I think is the largest economy in Africa. It paints a pretty gruesome picture. Um, I think, um, I suppose, really the, the thing that um, Russell left out was um, to what extent the government are taking any kind of responsibility, to what extent there's any accountability for this disaster and, and previous disasters. And of course, that raises the question of what, if any, opposition um, or coordinate, coordinated action there might be um, you know, to, to express um, a, a opposition to it all. It's so, um, it's so catastrophic. You kind of are left wondering, is there any way out of this? Um, because clearly there's been very ineffectual opposition um, all along. And I'm, I'm, Anyway, perhaps Russell could expand a little bit on, on political reaction and political accountability here. Thanks. Okay. Yeah, exactly my question as well. Um, uh, James Woodhausen. Well, James, yeah, I have, connectedly. Um, how long has Ramaphosa got, would you say, uh, given what may vulgarly and has been uh, uh, described as, you know, the approach to Zimbabwe in South Africa. Uh, it might not have all the features of Zimbabwe, like uh, high inflation and so on. But uh, the problem, as, as far as I can see, is that Julius Malema and his uh, sort of um, radical Stalinist opposition to Ramaphosa and the ANC is not going to bring any positive results, quite obviously. I think some of the inspiration behind Roads Must Fall in England. Um, so it does look very bleak. And what the chat is saying, what Jenny's saying, what we're all hoping for, given the, you know, uh, the heroism that South Africa represented for us in, in England, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Um, is there any chance of anything good coming all of that, uh, coming out of all of this? Or... Uh, you know, must we hope for the Chinese again to ride in like the cavalry? Are they doing that just yet? Okay, great. Uh, Phil Mullen, again, unmute yourself. Thanks. Uh, yes, thanks, <laughs> Russell, for that, as everyone said, rather grim portrayal. Um, two questions. The discussion, in, as Rob sort of alluded to, you know, we're, we're clearly having a discussion in Britain that's been a pretty, or appears a pretty shambolic, incompetent um, governmental running of the of the uh, pandemic. And there's a discussion about to what extent is that a policy problem, to what extent is that a delivery problem. Uh, and I wonder if there's if that's something which has any bearing in terms of what's happening in in South Africa. I mean, people talk about the 
you know, if you look at the international institutions, they just say there is a, a non-functioning state. Um, and, and so when you look at your slides and you compare this, you know, quite extensive list of policy decisions that seem to have been made, and then the abject failure of them to be uh, followed through, you know, how do you see it in terms of, you know, the responsibility of the political leadership? Uh, and, you know, are they not really sincere about these things? Or is it just a, you know, a, a fact that there isn't a, a state apparatus to implement even what, you know, some of the politicians might want to do with, with, with you know, good intentions? And the second question is, you stress right at the end, just, you know, what would it take to overcome the fiscal conservatism? Uh, and that does seem quite a uh, distinctive uh, sort of response because almost everywhere else, uh, the theme, the big theme is government is back. And, and, you know, it's been something that's been building up, you know, since the financial crash that, you know, government does have to, for pragmatic reasons, play more of a role in the economy. Uh, you know, we've seen it with central banks, obviously, in, in um, quantitative easing and so on in many Western countries, Western, Western regions. Uh, and yet you, you know, see that the government seem in South Africa seems to be stuck on its uh, austerity program and therefore, you know, doesn't want to uh, even acknowledge that the state maybe have to play a bigger role in terms of even propping up this uh, uh, extremely weak economy. So is there, is there no sense in which uh, that discussion is taking place of South Africa perhaps following, I'm not saying it's a solution to the problems uh, of the South African economy and politics, but uh, is there no way that the, uh, the government is, is picking up on that uh, uh, sort of rehabilitation of state intervention in the rest of uh, the industrialized world. Okay, I'm going to take David and then I'm going to give Russell a chance to come back and uh, um, make some points and then I'll come back out again. So Russell. Oh, sorry, I'll unmute you. There you go. Okay. You want me to, you said David. Yeah, if you just you come back on whatever you want. Okay. I mean, yeah, I'm sorry. It's been a bit grim. Maybe, maybe it's just my vantage point in the Eastern Cape. But I mean, the last few days have seen the discussion of just the total collapse of the health system, and that seems to be it seems to be unraveling now in other parts of the country. The country. Um, uh, on on Jagdish's question, um, I think I think there is an assumption it's going to be about forty-eight thousand. Uh, deaths by by November. Whether those are reliable statistics, I don't know. And his his um, his question is an interesting one about uh, so-called BAME deaths. The economic freedom fighters, who are probably the most vocal opposition, noisy opposition anyway, have specifically been complaining that government has failed to give a breakdown of infections and deaths by ethnic grouping so it's very difficult to know but i think we can fairly safely assume that poor people uh, poorly uh, fed and uh, uh, poorly housed people are going to be the ones that um, that are suffering the worst from the situation whether our patterns follow the sort of uh, western or north northern patterns of older people like in care homes etc dying uh, I think is 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 not absolutely clear, but I mean we have a large number of people with all sorts of uh, 
morbid health conditions in, in this country, high blood pressure, tuberculosis, HIV, AIDS. And um, I think we can assume to some extent that at least some of those conditions, particularly the high blood pressure, the uh, kidney failure, the kind of uh, situation that a lot of unhealthy people are, are in uh, are going to lead to a lot of deaths in, in that kind of sector. And those are going to be poor people and poorly housed uh, working class people. Um, on, is there any opposition to this? Well, I mean, the official opposition, uh, the, the Democratic Alliance, um, is uh, Helen Ziller, the, the, uh, the, the noisiest sort of leader in that alliance, has been using diversionary tactics and going on about how uh, there are more racial laws under this regime than there were under apartheid. So that's diverted entirely from, from real questions of what is to be done in this current situation. Uh, although the, the the one DA province, uh, which is the Western Cape, uh, is probably better run and has got better health uh, measures to deal with COVID-19. But they, as they were the first and had the most deaths early on, they got a lot of stick for that. But uh, as far as coordinated opposition goes, the left initially, what you could call the left, um, uh, the old left, initially sort of put together a campaign to try and get government to uh, modify its policies on social welfare, quantitative easing, um, generally break away from fiscal conservatism. A lot of documents were written, attempts were made to, uh, to get, feed this into government channels, but it seems to have pretty much gone nowhere. And we have a fairly moribund opposition in this country. Um, like everywhere else, I suppose. So there's no coherent political opposition. Or I mean, the, the biggest the biggest uh, uh, thing you hear is about the need to to stay at home, keep safe, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, as with everywhere else, there's a lot of fear uh, in the air around this, and um, no no sort of yeah, political alternatives on offer. How long does Cyril have? Ironically, Cyril comes out looking much better than anybody else, um, as far as I can tell. I think his his popularity still exceeds any other leader. Most most of uh, other leadership has come across in a fairly discredited way. The opposition has not been looking good. So um, yes, it's bleak. Uh, the Chinese will they be coming in? I mean, there there is talk of a, a recent major deal. Uh, Chinese taking over large tracts of land for, for mineral extraction, but I don't know that there's any obvious Chinese intervention at the moment. I think China, China has assisted with some uh, PPE, etc. But I think Cyril remains pretty much unchallenged. Cyril Ramaphosa, I'm talking about the existing president. And to most people, sounds like the voice of reason. Although a lot of um, old ANC um, loyalists are very angry with the current situation and very embittered, but don't really have any answers. Uh, and to move on to the questions that, that Phil asked, um, it's a long-standing issue. We have allegedly good policy, but inability to implement. Um, I, th I think 
so much of the state bureaucracy has been about uh, what you could crudely call a process of primitive accumulation that we've had an eating away of capacity in the state bureaucracy and uh, people who actually are interested in being uh, capable deliverers of services tend to take a back seat and tend to be sidelined. Uh, so is the leadership sincere? It's, it's difficult to say. I mean, the president himself is, um, uh, is one of the wealthiest men in the country and is, uh, was, was part of the original black empowerment process, you know, of old political activists bought into, into, into um, the existing business arrangements in the country. So sincerity, it's, it's a good question. Uh, why there's this fiscal conservatism? It's it's a, a very good question. Uh, National Treasury, I think, has been used since 1994 as a way of trying to bring a bit of sanity into the way government is run through fiscal measures. And I think that remains. This fiscal conservatism is the only handle that those political managers with a, uh, any amount of... Uh, sense of direction have got to to try and keep government in line so fiscal conservatism is is almost the the key political lever to try and run run a government on a on a, a rational basis in south africa uh, but i think this, this is something that needs that needs more discussion i know the left if you can call it that was was pushing the whole quantitative easing thing was arguing against the the fiscal conservatism that's been traditional, but that's had, as we can see from from the figures I gave you, uh, budgetary figures, had virtually no impact. Okay, I can't right. really answer your question for. <laughs> okay, that was that was great. Uh, so I'm gonna whiz around. We're actually slightly overrunning already, but never never mind. It's all been very very interesting. So uh, I'm gonna come to uh, David. If you could unmute yourself. And then okay, so I want to take a different view than Russell has taken and, and pose something to him. There's no pandemic in South Africa, it's all rubbish. Let's just look at the numbers. The total confirmed numbers of cases in South Africa today are 150,000. 150,000. The deaths in the country are 2,600. That's not a pandemic. There's no overwhelming of the hospitals. It's just simply untrue. There's a proposition being put forward, Russell's reflecting the conventional view, that is widely challenged by numbers of other people. And those are the figures. So Russell defended why this is a pandemic and the hospitals are being overrun. I think the, the more interesting question is, with these low numbers, extraordinarily low numbers, for a society of the size that we are in South Africa, 16 million people and those numbers, why have we closed down the economy? It's absolutely bizarre. The consequences, of course, are faced by the poor. That's always the case. Second thing I want to say to you, and I can't really give you great detail for this, but here's a proposition. The reason why people are dying in the Eastern Cape and the Western Cape, first the Eastern Cape. That's where the elderly are. That's traditionally where the elderly always are. 
or working class people. And in the Western Cape, same thing. Large numbers of elderly people. Look across the breadth of South Africa elsewhere, you don't see these numbers. So this fits very much with the pattern that we see on an international basis. Is it not encouraging that working class people treat the conventional proposition with utter contempt? You go through any of the working class areas, and I do that. You go through Soweto. People have long stopped social distancing, masks, and Yeovil stopped it, broadly stopped it, have no respect for it whatsoever. Next question for you, Russell. Do you not think it's very attractive that the taxi industry is saying to government, we don't care about what, how much money you've got. We need money. Our members need money. You give it to us. And if you don't give it to us, we'll break the law and we'll do what we want to do. Isn't that something that's extraordinarily positive about a working class response? Is that we're not interested in how you meet your economic desires. We have desires, we have needs, and our needs are our priority and your rules are irrelevant to us when it comes to our needs. I think that that's an absolutely terrific response that we see in the taxi industry. And incidentally, we see it elsewhere within this economy. So broadly, I want to say to you that there are some very encouraging responses in the South African working class. Doesn't want to take responsibility for this stuff. Wants to get what it needs, wants its jobs. And to some extent, and I'm no, I haven't really subjected this to very close analysis, but I also differ with you about how the South African government is going about this. Sure, they're inefficient, but they're reaching everywhere they can to find money to deal with the problem that they face, both with business and with the needs of the working class, and they're prepared to borrow anywhere to do it. So again, government under pressure will do what it needs to do. Right, okay, thank you very much. Um, uh, Daniel. Okay, well, well, maybe just first of all, on the first point just made by David on the casualty figures. I mean, it's quite right. If you look at the John Hopkins, Johns Hopkins University figures, they collate the figures internationally. The number of deaths at the moment is 2,600, which is quite low relative to South Africa's population of, what, about 60 million, something like that. Uh, so, uh, but I've been very, very cautious about just taking those figures at face value. First of all, because there could be a lot of undercounting. But more importantly, we're still in the early stages of the pandemic. You know, especially someone like South Africa, you can't put the same model on it as you would looking at Britain or, or Germany or the US. It's not just about the elderly. You know, in South Africa, as Russell talked about in his introduction, you have millions and millions of immunocompromised people, you know, people with HIV, tuberculosis, and so on. Uh, and those people are... Uh, very, very vulnerable, even though they might be 20, 25, 30 years old. So we can't be sure what would happen, but it seems to me that there's a real potential for the medical side of the pandemic to get a lot worse. I mean, it's already spreading from, as far as I can see, from uh, the Western Cape, and it's now becoming much bigger in uh, Kauteng and uh, Pretoria, Johannesburg, and so on. So it, it could, I don't know for sure, but I think the casualty figures could rapidly increase, they could get a lot worse. Uh, I'm conscious I'm being as gloomy as Russell, but I think that is the real situation. At least there's a strong possibility uh, that could happen. It's not just picked out of nowhere. Uh, 
The, the main point I wanted to make, though, or question really, is I, I do find it very difficult to understand South Africa in many ways because it's not it's not a poor country. I mean, there are obviously many, many millions of poor people in South Africa, uh, and that's a big problem. But in aggregate, it's classified as a middle-income country. It's got a lot of natural resources, as Russell referred to in his introduction. So potentially, at least, you would think that it has got resources that it could use to help mitigate the effects of the pandemic and to help grow the economy. But even before the pandemic, the economy seemed to be in a real mess. You know, this is a real long-standing problem of a lack of growth. So stagnant growth in some respects, like Italy, just, you know, it's not growing. But unlike Italy, a rising population, so income per head, is falling uh, quite significantly. Uh, so I don't, I mean, people have referred to things like the delivery problem and the uh, fiscal conservatism, but is, isn't there more to it? Why can't it get the economy off the ground? I think that's a really interesting and important question. And then finally, I don't really understand the lockdown either because it doesn't seem to me to be likely to be effective in containing the pandemic. I mean, when you do have people in these informal settlements, you know, the slums in South Africa, in, in townships, where they can't socially distance, where in many cases they don't have access to water in their own home. It seems to me that lockdown is a strategy, as, as I said in an earlier forum, where in, in places like South Africa, where it has a huge amount of economic damage, but at the same time, there isn't really a benefit in containing the pandemic. I, I just can't see the benefit. It seems to be a very strange kind of strategy. Okay, right. Um, that's brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, James Wood-Harrison? Well, uh, it, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing you right. Nomzamo Ngwabi has raised the question of state capture. And uh, I remember the Jacob Zuma, you know, being involved in this case with the Indian squillionaires, the Gupta brothers. And I was always very suspicious of the idea that uh, the private sector had captured the South African state. That seems to me what, say, critics of Big Pharma uh, say, and I don't buy it. Uh, if you look at Pharma, for example, just to digress, it's all run by the state. The whole thing is state regulated, FDA approved, and so on. So I always felt that the South African state was actually the dominant partner, despite the Gupta corruption uh, media furore. And I want to ask Russell and also maybe David, you know, uh, where has that debate come to, got to, and is the disintegration of the state to do with uh, embedded Zuma-style corruption, although I don't think that corruption explains much of what's going on in Africa, but the, you know, since you mentioned, Russell, the kind of uh, inability of the state to implement its measures, it seems to me it's a kind of sort of squillionaire, guardian, Stalinist bureaucracy uh, on the loose. And, you know, I can't think of anything worse. I mean, the Guardian's bad enough. But, uh, you know, it seems to me that the, that the historic tradition of the ANC, which is Stalinism, has, uh, you know, really more than ever, not just the shanty towns and everything, destroyed the working class movement and destroyed independent politics, and now the healthcare system and the economy. And this was the, we should not forget in Britain that the ANC was the cause celebre along with Mandela for many, many years. And that's why we don't hear all the things that you're telling us, uh, Russell, because 
Ramaphosa still gets a clean bill of health as the non-corrupt version of Zuma. Right, great. Okay, I'm going to take in uh, Robert Fig, and then I'll come back to Russell to uh, closing remarks. Really, <laughs> we're massively over time. But anyway, uh, so uh, Robert, thanks, Rob. Um, yeah, I just wanted to make a, a couple of points about uh, about what's happened during the pandemic um, on the commodity side, because South Africa, of course, is one of the world's largest gold producers and one of the world's largest consumers of oil. In the first case, in gold terms, the price of gold is at a, all, practically at an all-time high, and we've seen uh, significantly low prices on oil, and those have been fairly beneficial uh, to the South African economy um, uh, during the pandemic. The problem we've had is that China, uh, which is South Africa's effectively largest trading partner in commodities, stopped buying um, many of the commodities that South African produces, uh, vanadium, uh, ferrochrome, manganese, um, and uh, gold, platinum, palladium, and various other commodities uh, because of the uh, massive decline in demand. Uh, that, of course, uh, with the recovery in China um, to uh, where the purchasing managers index is now well into the 50s, 60s percent, um, China is now buying South African resources again. South Africa, uh, China is a very big uh, customer of South Africa. Um, recently, we saw, just before the pandemic broke, we saw um, Russia, the Russian Navy, the Chinese Navy, and the South African Navy uh, doing joint exercises off Cape Town. Uh, we see uh, large numbers of Chinese industries moving into South Africa and cheap loans coming in. Um, the problems that they're facing are... Uh, fairly large. I mean, I think from an industrial perspective, the lack of uh, power um, and the failure of the uh, state-run enterprise ESCOM to provide power to uh, industry has been a major break on, uh, on, on the economy for some time. And secondly, the mining charter, which is a very poor attempt at, national, uh, at uh, resource nationalism, um, has scared off a large number of investors from the South African economy over the last few years. So it's in a very difficult position at the moment. Um, the markets are recovering uh, in the commodities that South Africa is very strong at. Um, and uh, um, it, sh it should be fairly beneficial to the economy um, over the next few years. Obviously, the power issue has to be resolved. Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much for that insight there. Um, right. Um, Russell, do not uh, attempt to, to cover all of that, I think. Just pick out maybe two or three points to uh, the, the central ones to uh, come back on. The floor is yours. Thanks, Rob. Um, well, all I can say is I hope David is right. Um, we don't know really at the moment, but what we do know is uh, hospitals in the Eastern Cape are overwhelmed um, and I, I'm not just getting that from the media but from people in the medical profession that I know uh, 
people with COVID-19 are, are lying in beds or in corridors next to other casualty cases in the hospitals. The hospitals are overflowing. I mean, I don't, I don't know, maybe the press is exaggerating, but it's got to the stage where people are sort of dying in the street because they, they can't get, get treatment for, for COVID-19. And it's a reality that this, uh, this big um, thousand bed hospital that VW paid for has not got any staff. And there's a union problem as well. I mean, unions have refused to cooperate because they say there's no PPE. Um, I agree with David, the economy was probably closed at the wrong time, too early. Um, when, when very little was going on in, in, in the way of infection. I mean, it's been argued that we've got such low infections because we closed so early, but I think now is a time where you'd want to see a, a proper uh, st uh, strict closing down of things, and, and that happened three months ago. So people are not going along with it anymore. But uh, for David also to say that People are, are treating the whole thing with contempt. That's not true whatsoever. No, certainly not where I am. Maybe it is in Joburg. Um, there's intense fear of what's going on. People do wear masks, even in rural areas. Um, and I, I don't know whether the taxi rebellion is is really such a positive thing. Taxi operators are not regarded as a pretty as a particularly progressive bunch by most South Africans. In fact. Are, are held in, in in quite a lot of scorn for the kind of criminal way they run their operations. So whether that's an encouraging thing, I don't know. The working class movement as an organized movement is pretty much dead in this whole situation. Um, David talks about encouraging working class responses. I'm not quite sure what those are. Um, workers are, have, have been pretty well sidelined in all this and uh, are suffering enormously as a result of uh, closures of industry and closures of businesses. Around here, most workers lost their jobs for several months because um, there's no tourism industry and it's hardly got going uh, yet. Um, yeah, I, I think Daniel's points were, were fairly common sense. You know, they, I th we don't know yet, but it seems that it is getting worse. It started off in the Western Cape and um, it's now taking off in the major areas, particularly in Gauteng. And it's a bit of an unknown at the moment. Um, James makes the points about corruption and the Guptas and, and the dominant role of the state. Well, I think um, state capacity has, has declined since 1994. And uh, the, uh, the approach that was taken as, as part of the settlement to incorporate the old leadership of the National Liberation Movement into, into uh, business in a subsidiary, subsidiary relationship, I think, has, has been followed through. Uh, but capa capacity of, of, the, of the new state, which is where the ANC is dominant, has not grown, um, except its capacity really to utilize state machinery uh, for self-enrichment or empowerment, as, as people call it. Um, there is a kind of Stalinist ethos in, in this whole thing, for sure. As, as, you, as, you, as you can see in the, the measures that have been implemented uh, in COVID-19, where 
a former Minister of Health in Kuzizana, Dlamini Zuma, uses her current role as Minister of Local Government to enforce all sorts of irrational health measures, such as the ban on, on alcohol and, and cigarettes, uh, which ha have no particular scientific basis, but is this kind of authoritarian uh, orientation of, 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 of the political elite similar with the with the minister of police i think i think uh, rob made some useful points about commodities how long it'll take before um the commodity sector in south africa starts to recover is, a, is another question but you'll notice that the mines were never totally closed even under the most stringent uh, stage of lockdown so uh, what uh, what the old left used to call the minerals energy com energy complex uh, remains uh, pretty significant in South Africa, but I don't know how long it's going to take for the economy to recover here. Uh, uh, I don't think we yet know uh, how much uh, key sectors of the economy have suffered from being almost totally closed down. Um, as, I, as I said before, I hope, I hope David is right and that we are uh, an exceptional case in the world and we're not going to have major deaths thanks to COVID-19, but I don't think we have the information yet to say whether that's true or not. What we do know for sure in this part of the world is the health service has totally imploded. Okay. Um, if you would like to unmute yourselves and give our speakers a round of applause because it's quite a fascinating double bill. <laughs> You'll have to unmute yourselves. I'm sorry, I can't, I can't unmute you. Anyway, that was a, not a very well organised round of applause, but nonetheless, thank you both um, for uh, your comments uh, uh, today. It's been really, really enlightening. Um, just to, to close, um, the next Economy Forum is going to be at uh, on next Tuesday, uh, and it's something entirely different, which is we have Matt Ridley, who's the uh, well-known uh, science writer and uh, who has got a new book out called How Innovation Works, uh, which he describes as the one of the most important yet least understood uh, processes in, uh, in terms of the economy. Um, and it's got lots, it's, it's, it's a very, very readable book if you get a chance to read it before next Tuesday, but uh, he will be introducing his own book and then we'll, we'll be grilling him about it. So that'll be at seven o'clock next Tuesday. Uh, until then, Thank you very much for uh, coming along. It's been a really, really good discussion and uh, um, have a good evening.